Jesus heals on the Sabbath. It seems as though the only time that the day of the week is mentioned in connection with one of Jesus' miracles, it was always on the Sabbath day. The good book never says that on the first day, except for the resurrection, on the first day of the week, Jesus healed somebody, or on the second day of the week, Jesus healed somebody. If the day of the week is specified where a healing was concerned, it was always on the Sabbath day, and there's a reason for this. The authors, all four of them, seem to be emphasizing in these miracles and the fact that they were done on Saturday, the animosity that existed between the enemies of Jesus and Jesus himself. The Jewish ruling class were always looking for some, some, something that they could hang on to, something that they could build into a justification for saying that he was a false prophet. He was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. And so whenever he heals on the Sabbath, then there is some con uh, controversy there. And so we're going to notice that this morning, that on this particular occasion, it is the Sabbath day, and Jesus uh, performs a healing. In John chapter 5, and beginning with verse 1, we read about the healing and the controversy that followed this particular healing. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. These people think they're going to be healed by the waters. Uh, some of this is left out of the English Standard Version. But they think they're going to be healed by these waters, that an angel is going to come and stir up these waters. But only one person each time the waters are stir stirred up by an angel can be healed, and that's the first person down in there. And so all these people are up there ready to be healed. They want to... The, the stirring of the waters to occur so they can be the first one in, and here's this invalid. He just can't get down in there by himself. And so that's the background, that's the context. So in verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, in other words, while he's getting up and trying to get down there, another steps down before me. And so he just can't seem to make it down there in time to be the first one down into the waters when they are stirred. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now the Jews had 
bound all sorts of things on the common uh, common people that were not bound by the law. Not everything was unlawful on the Sabbath. It was unlawful to work in such a way as to earn your living. It was unlawful to cook. It was unlawful to gather sticks in order to start a fire to cook. But not everything was unlawful on the Sabbath. Certainly was not unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. Or no doctor could come and give you a house call when you were sick. No priest could circumcise a child on the eighth day when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath if every act was uh, uh, prohibited on the Sabbath day. And so they were uh, completely misinterpreting the law for the purpose of securing some semblance of justification in rejecting Jesus and in hopes of turning the people away because Jesus was having a great deal of influence on the people. And of course, he was contradicting both the Pharisees and the Sadducees right and left, and they didn't like that. That made them look bad. And so they tell this man, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's the Sabbath day. But notice the man's justification. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, here's a man that healed him. He doesn't know who he was. But the man that healed him gave him a command, take up your bed and walk. Well, he was of a mind and a right mind at that, a correct, correctly thinking individual. Any man that can heal me has the authority to command me to take up my bed and walk. And so he took up his bed and walked. And so that's his justification. There's no, as a matter of fact, there is no further argument against him. But the argument shifts to Jesus. That is, they refer to Jesus. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They want to have a talk with him now. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. The man didn't get to see him. There's a big crowd of people there. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We're not told what his inability was, only that he was an invalid. And so he says, Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. And of course, he might be referring to dying in his sin. And going to hell and being there eternally. That would certainly be worse than any any kind of uh, problem that he might have physically that might cause him to be an invalid. In verse 15, the uh, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I don't think that he thinks that he's getting Jesus in trouble or that he's going to get Jesus in trouble. He's simply acknowledging, here's the man who healed me. And so now he knows who it was. He's seen him. 
Apparently he's gathered from other people around about him who this man is. So he goes back and he tells the Jews, and in the book of John, whenever you see the Jews, that almost always refers to the ruling class. The common people, they're just called the people. So the Jews, that's the rulers, or the, the ruling, uh, uh, the self-appointed rulers, the ruling class, the self-appointed men, the rabbis, the council, etc., so he tells him, well, it was Jesus who, healed, who had healed me. And th- thus, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This was not the only thing Jesus did on the Sabbath as far as healing was concerned. He healed a lot of people. And he healed a lot of people on the Sabbath. But it was not wrong to heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus in another place defends that. He says, which of you has a donkey that falls in a ditch on the Sabbath day? Which of you would not go down into the ditch and get that donkey out? You wouldn't let him suffer. In another place, he talks about the priest circumcising an infant son on the eighth day, even if the eighth day turned out to be the eighth day of his birth, turned out to be the Sabbath day. And there was no violation of the Sabbath there. So not everything done on the Sabbath was a violation of the Sabbath law. Certainly, it was not wrong to heal. On another occasion, Jesus said, is it it right to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath day? So this is why there is a controversy here. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Not because he did it on this occasion only, but that on other occasions he performed miracles on the Sabbath day. And again, they were using that as a pretext for their refusal to acknowledge him for whom he was. Now, in verse 17, beginning, going through verse 23, we see that Jesus defends his actions by claiming unity and equality with the Father. This was not lost on them. They understood him to be claiming unity and equality with the Father. They didn't like that either. But that was Jesus' defense, beginning in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, God rested from his labors on the seventh day. Later, when God gave to Israel the command to rest on the Sabbath day, he... uh, He did it because, well, the Sabbath day, because that was the day on which he rested, but also in recognition of the fact that they were in bondage under uh, Egyptian bondage uh, for so long and had no days of rest. So he gives them this day of rest. But the father rested on the Sabbath day. He didn't stop working altogether. God has continued to work throughout the ages, through the laws that he established through providence, and in answer to prayer. And so the Father didn't stop all working. He just stopped creating. And so there was an end to the creation on the seventh day. He rested. But he continued working. Jesus knew that. So he says, my Father is working until now. That means is working. He has not stopped working. And I am working. 
because I came to do his will. This was why, John explains, this was why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he wasn't, but that's uh, today, if the Bible was written today, they'd have put quotation marks around breaking. He didn't break the Sabbath. He broke their tradition, but they viewed it as breaking the Sabbath. So, But this is their reasoning. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is God, as we pointed out Monday night, or was it last night? Which one was it, John? Uh, Monday night, we was talking about that, and I knew he would refresh my memory. Jesus is God. He existed from eternity past. He came to the earth. He was born of a woman, born under the law, and therefore he entered into the human race, became a man. And uh, so he is God and he is man. They wouldn't have any problem recognizing that he was man. But he had no earthly father. The only father he had was God because he came forth from God and then was born into the world through his mother, a virgin. In verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Now, Jesus is not talking about not having the authority to do what he's doing. What he is saying is, I can do whatever my father does because I came to do his will. I came to reveal him. And if he does it, it's right. And so I'm going to do it. People were frequently healed of natural causes through natural means on the Sabbath day. And so if God could do that providentially through natural means, then Jesus could do it miraculously through supernatural means. So if the Father wasn't doing it, Jesus couldn't do it. The Jesus would not be able to do it if the Father hadn't done it and if the Father hadn't enabled him or authorized him to do it. Now, what we see here, Jesus is claiming that he's following the example of his Father. Sometimes brethren say, well, you know, example isn't isn't good enough to have authority. Well, Jesus used example, the example of his Father to establish authority for what he did. He also used the commands of his father to establish authority for what he did. He also used implication, necessary inference, to establish authority for what he did and taught. So whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So they can't say that he's breaking the Sabbath because the father is working until now. The father did not stop working on the Sabbath day. And so he stopped creation on the Sabbath day, but he continues to work throughout them providentially and through natural means, through the natural physical forces that he started in the beginning. And so he was still working and Jesus was going to work. In verse 20, for the father loves the son 
and shows him all that he himself is doing. The father concealed nothing from the son. The father fully revealed himself to the son. This was true, of course, in heaven, in eternity past. And it continued to be true while Jesus was on the earth. The father was continually revealing himself to his son and not hiding anything from him. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself, the father, is doing. And greater works than these will he show them or show him. That is, will the father show him the son so that you may marvel Jesus performed many different kinds of miracles. He healed people. He restored limbs. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He changed water to wine. He stilled a storm and calmed the sea by the sound and command of his voice. Some of those greater than healing. Even the disciples, after seeing many acts of healing on his part, when he stilled the storm and calmed the sea, they said, what manner of man is this? Oh, they had already grasped that he was the son of God, but they did not fully comprehend what that meant. So they were continually surprised at the uh, uh, miraculous things that Jesus did. That's what Jesus is referring to here, I believe. Greater works than these will he show him, will the Father show the Son, so that you may marvel. And they are marveling at this. But they don't, they don't like the fact that they are marveling in this. They are embarrassed to be marveling at this. They cannot stand the fact that Jesus was a marvelous person, and that he was doing marvelous things because they could not do marvelous things. They were, according to Matthew chapter 23, they were laying heavy burdens on the people which they themselves, Jesus said, would not bear. They were forcing their will on people. Not just enforcing the law, which would have been right and good but enforcing the traditions of the fathers. That they had no right to do. Jesus is freeing the people from, those, from the restrictions of those traditions and from the other restrictions the Pharisees imposed that they had no right to oppose and, or, or impose. And so they didn't, like, they didn't like Jesus. This demonstrates the unity of love, counsel, and plan between Jesus and uh, the Father, Jesus and the Father. They both loved one another. They both loved man. They agreed in the council God established. I like to say this way. God authored the eternal plan. Jesus activated the eternal plan. And the Holy Spirit authenticated the eternal plan. They didn't like it that Jesus was activating the eternal plan. They might not have believed it, but they could not argue really against the things that Jesus said. And so they were reduced to ridicule and 
false accusations about breaking the Sabbath, etc. Because that's all they could do. They could raise no sound argument, no decent, honest reason for rejecting Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus not only healed the sick, He could raise the dead. We're told at least of at least three persons that He raised from the dead. The, the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. We don't know how many other people he may have raised from the dead, but we're told about those three. Jesus has the authority to raise the dead, to give life to whom he will, just as the Father did. And so this is unity in imparting life. There was an agreement there. They had, just as there was a unity in counsel and love and plan, there's unity in imparting life. Jesus had the authority of God for everything he did when he healed somebody, when he raised somebody from the dead, and again, when he stilled the storm and calmed the sea. In verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. God sent his Son into the world to save mankind, but when he, at the end of time, he's going to send him back to judge mankind. Even during his life on earth, though he was primarily here to save, he was making judgments. Just as the Pharisees and other members of the council were making judgments, but their ju- judgments were not righteous. The judgments of Jesus were righteous. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The problem was the Pharisees were not honoring the Father. If they had honored the Father, they would not have replaced the the law, the enforcement of the law, with the enforcement of these human traditions that their ancestors had come up with. They didn't love the Father. They give lip service to to Him. They didn't honor the Father, and so it was no surprise to Jesus that they did not honor him. Later in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he tells them they are of their father, the devil. The devil was their spiritual father, not God, because they failed to honor God and honored, really, the devil by enforcing something other, even contradictory to God's will. And so there is unity in judgment and honor. Beginning in verse 23 and going through 30, Jesus explains his relations to man. That is, the relationship that ought to exist between him and man, but which too often does not exist between him and the majority of mankind. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, this is the Gospel of John. John the, in his epistles, John writes about this too. He writes about the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. They were saying that the Son is not, uh, God is not come in the flesh. That was the denial of the incarnation. 
And John says, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, there's not one great Antichrist that's going to come uh, at the end of time, as far as we know. Certainly nothing about that person or such a person in the book of Revelation. But there are many Antichrists, John says in his epistles. Anybody who is against Christ is anti-Christ. And so whoever does not honor the Son, being against the Son... He does not honor the Father who sent him. He is against the Father. You can't be against Jesus, the Son, and before the Father. So Jesus has a right to receive divine honor. We are to honor him as God. Somebody said, well, I thought he was the Son of God. Yes, but he's God. Remember John 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. As a member of the Godhead, he was and is God. But he came to earth as a representative of God when, in my mind, he was born into this world. He was the son of Mary, the son of a woman, and he was the son of God. He was not the genealogical son of Joseph. Perhaps you could call Joseph his adopted father, his foster father, certainly his legal father, but not his physical, genetic father. Jesus has a right to receive divine honor. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, if you hear the words of Jesus and accept them, You believe him who sent him. Catch that. If you reject the words of Jesus, you do not believe him who sent him. Because the words of Jesus were the words that the Father gave him. Again, Jesus came to activate the eternal plan. And everything he said and did was in harmony with that eternal plan. He, the the person who hears my word and believes him who sent me, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is, so long as he does continue to hear the words of Christ and continues to believe him who sent Jesus. That's the person who has eternal life. Now, if he quits believing, if he quits hearing Jesus' words, If he quits believing him who sent Jesus, then he might yet come into judgment. But the one who continues to hear Jesus' words, that's the one who continues to believe him who sent him. That's the one who has eternal life. It's kind of like chapter chapter 10 where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and follow me. If they stop hearing his voice or stop following him, they cease to be his sheep. And so we need to keep that in mind. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here he's talking about those who are spiritually dead, not those who are physically dead. Jesus, just as John the Baptist was preaching the coming of the kingdom of the spiritual kingdom of God. 
There were people even then who were dead in their sins. If they wanted to be alive in God, alive with Jesus Christ, they had to accept his word, believing, therefore, in God the Father. So the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Not all the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, but those who hear and hear in this place here, the word hear, H-E-A-R, means to hear and heed. He heeds the voice of the Son of God. It's not in one ear and out the other. It's in one ear into the heart and never out the other. Here's the person who hears the word and he makes application of it to his life. So Jesus has the power to impart spiritual life. And here the word power is used in a twofold sense. He has the physical power and he has the authority of God. The only man who ever lived on this earth who could impart spiritual life was Jesus Christ. He could do that because he was and is the Son of God. Power to impart spiritual life. He goes on in verse 26 and says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Remember Genesis chapter 2, I believe verse 7, God made man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God imparted his spirit to man. That's why man is created in the image of God. But that image has long since been tarnished. Adam and Eve tarnished it. Every man that even came, ever came into this world living long enough, and by that I simply mean he, he reached a point in his life where he could make free will decisions concerning right and wrong, tarnished the image that he bore from birth. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, as I mentioned in class, Jesus more frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man than he did the Son of God. That doesn't, that's not a reflection on Jesus. He is and he was the Son of Man. He was humanity. He possessed humanity. But humanity was something he took upon himself. Deity was something he always had. There was no point at which Jesus became deity. He always was deity. But there was a point at which he became a human individual. He took upon himself humanity when he voluntarily was born of a virgin into this world. So God the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Another way, I think, to look at this phrase, Son of Man, Jesus is the epitome of manhood. If you want to see what manhood is all about, you just look at Jesus. Jesus was a man above men. He was the only man that ever lived on this earth that fully measured up to the expectations of God. Oh, there were a lot of righteous men. But every other man was made righteous by God by virtue of his 
faith in God and the action that he performed that was consistent with and an outpouring of that faith. Jesus is the epitome of manhood. The only man who ever was and remained righteous throughout his life. And it was not a righteousness derived from God. A righteousness that was his own because he never did anything contrary to his father's will. And so Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. And one of these days he's going to. Paul talks about that in Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31. That God is going to judge and he gave, a, gave evidence of that when he raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus will be the one who will who would judge mankind. He has authority to execute judgment. In verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, here he's talking about physically dead people, will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One day, everyone who has ever died will be resurrected. That does not mean they will necessarily live again. Those who have done good, they will come out of the tombs to the resurrection of life. They will have life. Spiritual life that God always intended for man to have. We can have that in a limited sense, in this life, but it's a derived life from God, spiritual life. He imparts it to us, but it's on loan. We can squander that life, fail to measure up to the expectations of God, and die out of Christ, out of fellowship with God. If we depart from God's will, and go back into wickedness, then we will be among those who have done evil and who are raised to the resurrection of judgment. That's condemnation in many translations. They'll not be raised to life. They'll be raised to death. That's the second death. The first death is simply a separation of the soul and the flesh. The second death is a full and final separation of of the spirit of man from God. So Jesus has the power to impart physical life as well as spiritual life. And one day he's going to do that because he has already revealed the terms by which we can be rewarded with eternal life. As he said in his epistle to one of the seven churches of Asia, be thou faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And that means more than just being faithful till you die. Not everyone will be called upon to choose between physical death and spiritual life. But when faced with that choice, we have to choose spiritual life. We have to choose to be right with God no matter what man may do unto us. That's what faithful unto death means. And if we're faithful unto death, we receive the crown of life. Now, everybody has to be faithful until they die. But not everybody will be faced with that kind of decision. 
like they were in the first century. There were many people, many Christians crucified in the first century. It is said that during the reign of Nero that the roads were lined with crosses and on these crosses were Christians who were tarred and set afire to light the roads. If they were faithful unto death, that didn't really matter. And they knew and understood that. They did not love their lives unto death, but loved Jesus unto death. That's the kind of faith we need to have. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. It's not because he was a man, because he was a, a, a member of the Godhead. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus didn't come to earth so that he could marry and have children. And hope that his children had children so that he could enjoy grandchildren. He didn't come to enjoy the pleasures of life. He came to save man from sin. That was the will of him who sent him. That was the will of God. And he did that will. He did not seek his own. He didn't seek anything of it, that, that he might wish in and of himself. His desire was simply to do God's will. That's what he prayed in the garden. Not my will, Father, but thine be done. Jesus judges righteously. Many people will judge unrighteously, the judge according to appearance. You know, if anybody knows any passage of Scripture other than John three sixteen, it's Matthew 7, verse 1. You're judging. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, they need to take that into context. He's not condemning all judging. He's condemning hypocritical judging. And this right here says Jesus judges Righteous judgment. My judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Every decision he ever made while he was on the earth was not in view of something he might want of a physical nature. You know, he had all the drives and physical desires that were common to man. But he didn't come to fill those desires and satisfy those drives. He came to do the will of his father. In verses 31 through 39, Jesus presents testimony to the truth of his words. Just in case there's anybody in the audience, and probably the, the Jewish ruling class were of this sort, but the other people were there too, the common people who we're told by Mark, I believe, heard him gladly. They needed to hear these words. So he presents testimony to the truth of his words. He said, don't take my word for it. If, it, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He doesn't mean that I would lie. He means it would be worthless. It would be worth nothing in a court of law. And yet later, when he's called before the Sanhedrin, they put him under oath and tell him, are you the son of God? 
Now, it's not like our system of jurisprudence where we are asked if we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, swear or affirm, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we say, I do. We put ourselves under oath. Under that system, the, uh, the council puts you under oath. So once they said that, we adjure you by the, uh, by the Spirit of God, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, you, basically, you said it, paraphrasing. Then he says, but hereafter you'll see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But, and they condemned him on the basis of his testimony, which they basically forced him to give which was not in accordance with the law. You couldn't condemn a man on fewer than two or three witnesses, and there had to be somebody other than himself. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, here is an unidentified star witness. He's going to be identified in just a moment. He doesn't reveal who this star witness is. But he does talk about some other witnesses. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Born witness, he's born testimony. Testimony, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He's not depending solely on the testimony of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist did testify of it. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But eventually they stopped hearing John the Baptist. Herod put him to death. At the behest of his wife Herodias, beheaded him. We don't know what happened to his head, but his disciples came and buried the body. I suppose the head was kept in possession of Herodias. She hated John because of what he said to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have her, Herodias, because she had married Philip, Herod's brother. So John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so there's the testimony of John. But that's not all the testimony Jesus has. He doesn't stop there. But the testimony that I have is greater than John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Already John has recorded the visit of Nicodemus to Jesus. When Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God is with him. And yet the Pharisees just couldn't bear to admit that. The Jewish ruling class, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, any and all rabbis, they couldn't bear that. Well, there were a few exceptions. Nicodemus was one of them. Joseph of Arimathea was another one. Those two took care of the body of Jesus while the apostles scattered. But the testimony that I have is greater than John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, such as healing on the Sabbath, 
but certainly not that only. Bear witness about me that the Father hath sent me. Here they were finding fault with him for providing testimony that the Father had sent him. Refusing to accept the strength of that testimony. And so the testimony of his works added to and bolstered the testimony of John. John's testimony was before Jesus began his ministry and before Jesus began to do his works. And so John testified and then Jesus performed his works. They were a testimony also. In verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Here's the star witness. His voice you have never heard. Now, the people at Mount Sinai, they heard God's booming voice as he spoke directly to them the Ten Commandments. But they said to Moses, listen, we, we, we can't stand this. Please, you go up and let him tell you and then you come down and tell us. Those people had heard the voice of the Father. These people had not heard that. They weren't there then. They hadn't heard it in the physical sense. They hadn't heard it in the spiritual sense. Why? Because they were listening to the Jewish ruling class or the ruling class itself was listening to their fathers, their ancestors, who had created this system of tradition, works of man, which obviated the Word of God. In some cases, they said, well, you know, I know... uh, I know Moses said, you know, uh, take care of your father and your mother. But, you know, if you just tell them you've given it to the treasury, you don't have to help your father and mother. That was what they would call a loophole. But there are no loopholes in God's law. Man may think there are, but they're not. The father who sent me, he has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Have you ever thought about God having a form? I don't know what that form is. The form of God, I guess. They had not seen it. They had not really perceived who God was. They had not. That's why they did not honor God. And, of course, did not honor his son. And you do not have his word abiding in you. What does that mean? That means that they didn't love his word and they were not seeking to apply God's word to their lives, not consistently. Certainly not when it was in opposition to what they wanted or what their ancestors had said in their traditions. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. By virtue of the fact that they rejected Jesus, Refusing to believe Jesus, that was proof in and of itself that they did not have the word of Jesus abiding in them. Now, at the baptism of Jesus, we all know. The Spirit descended as a dove, lighted upon Jesus, and a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I don't know how many people heard that. John the Baptist seems to have heard it based on his testimony as John the Apostle records 
in chapter 1 of John. But the people, maybe some around there who were being baptized by John at the same time heard that voice. I don't know. But I don't think he's even talking about the verbal voice. They're talking about the voice of God as it spoke in Scripture. By rejecting Scripture, they were rejecting the voice of God because the Scripture was the voice of God. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so the testimony of his father, his father was the star witness. If they just accepted that, they would, could not help but acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ and his right to perform the things that he did. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, it was possible during that age to have eternal life in a limited sense by the virtue of the scriptures. But only in the sense that they would be experiencing a type, a spirit, a prophetic type of the true righteousness that would not be theirs until Jesus shed his blood. Someone has said that forgiveness under the Old Testament was like a, a check written and signed by God. And when Jesus died on the cross, that check was signed by the blood of Jesus. That's kind of an illustration. You search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you would only look closer than what you are looking, you would see me. They didn't want to look any closer because they didn't want to see Jesus in those scriptures. They had misconceptions about the Messiah and who he would be, what he would be. They seemed to think he would be merely a man. And when Jesus claimed to be more than a man, that was more than they could bear. So that was the testimony of the scriptures. In addition to the testimony of John and the testimony of Moses and the testimony of the father. Then in verses 40 through 47, we see that Jesus explains the antagonism between himself and the Jews. Now, I know I've talked a little bit about this already. But here's where he deals with it in these last eight verses. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In spite of all this testimony. It's not just me claiming it. The John the Baptist testified. My works testified. The Father testified. The... Scriptures testified insurmountable evidence that he was indeed who he claimed to be. Yet they refused to come to him that he may have life. Why was it? They did not want life on God's terms. There's so many people today. They want to be saved. They want to be saved so bad they think they are saved and they think they can believe themselves saved. Once told a young man I worked with because uh, we were talking about praying for salvation. I said, you know, the Bible never says anything about praying for salvation. He, his jaw dropped. He said, how can you be saved? 
That's what Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Zoom. He, he, he couldn't grasp that. I think a lot of people think that's just too simple. Well, God kept it simple, intentional. So that we might understand. And the honest, in, honest person cannot help but see it. They would not come to God by virtue of the fact that they would not come to Jesus. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How did he know that? I have come in my Father's name, that is by his authority, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You know, there's so many people today. You know, I don't think I've ever been. Maybe I have, and it's just been a long time. But I've noticed that driving up and down the roads here in, in Lowndes County, there's a lot of preaching going on on AM 940. I listened to that back in Macon because it's news radio. A whole lot of preaching on 940. But they don't preach the truth. Why do they not preach the truth? They don't want the truth. They don't know the truth. They don't understand the truth. They have no use for the truth. They've been led astray by others. And then by having been led astray by others, they lead others astray. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And that's what most people are doing. That's why you've got so many different denominations today. People are, differ on whose authority they will accept in religion. Some people will only accept the authority of the Pope. He has no authority in religion. Some people only accept the authority of the current president of the Southern Baptist Association. He has no authority. Many people will accept the authority of just about any preacher that comes along their way. It's just so long as he tickles their ears and tells them what they want to hear. We've got to hear Jesus. We've got to receive him. The problem, they did not love God. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? They were patting one another on the backs. These Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and giving one another attaboys for the things that they were doing and saying and teaching. And that's the way the denominational world is today. All the denominations are agreed to disagree. You know, that's why they hate churches of Christ. Because we refuse to enter into that agreement. No, we, we can't just agree to disagree. We've got to preach, teach, believe, and obey the truth. Because that's the only way to heaven. There is, no, there is no way we can agree with false teachers to disagree. You're all right. I'm all right. We're all all right. We're all going to the same place. We're just on different roads. Well, there's only two roads. <laughs> The narrow road and the broad road. The narrow road leads to life and the broad road leads to destruction. 
They received honor from men rather than honor from God. They did not seem to want the honor that God would give them. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They really elevated Moses. And when they thought Jesus, or even Stephen in Acts chapter 7, well, Acts chapter 6, really, which kicked off Acts chapter 7, was saying something opposite to Moses or in opposition to Moses, they just couldn't stand that. But Moses testified of Jesus. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But Moses kind of, sort of, was the forerunner of John the Baptist. Every prophet in the Old Testament was, in a sense, were forerunners of John the Baptist and therefore of Jesus. They were running ahead, preparing the people for the coming one. So John did that too. But Jesus was and is the coming one. He has come. He has returned to heaven and one day he's going to come again. You do not believe my, me, uh, believe his writings. If you do not, how will you believe my words? They did not believe Moses in spite of their insistence that they did. We need to accept not just The words of Moses, certainly those. But more importantly, and essentially, the words of Jesus. If you need to make your heart right with God in a public way, as an alien sinner, you need to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. You call on the name of the Lord by believing in Him, repenting of your sins, Confessing your faith to me, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins. If you've done that, but you've not been following him faithfully, you need to repent of that and come back to Jesus before it's eternally too late. We'd encourage you to do that while we stand and while we sing.